Welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, a senior science writer here at TN. On this podcast, we are talking all things psychedelics. Ketamine, MDMA, DMT, and psilocybin. These four psychedelic substances are making waves in psychiatric medicine. While they are almost all banned and heavily restricted in the industrialized West, these compounds have overcome decades of stigma to become well-studied therapeutics, either approved or in trial to treat mental health conditions such as major depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Hundreds of millions of people worldwide are affected by these conditions, and currently available therapies prove ineffective for a substantial proportion of patients. The great need for a new class of drugs is clear. Over 100 clinical trials worldwide are investigating these compounds, and on today's podcast, I'm going to take a look at these compounds, their properties, and the conditions they aim to treat. First up is ketamine. This synthetic psychedelic was first developed in 1962 and has, unlike the other compounds on our list, been available as a medication for years legally. While its most common use in that sense has been as an animal tranquilizer, it's also been an FDA-approved human anesthetic since 1970, and it achieves its action by blocking signals through a type of receptor in the brain and spinal cord called the NMDA receptor. By blocking these receptors, ketamine induces pain relief or analgesia in low doses and full sedation and anesthesia at high doses. It also, of course, is known as a street drug, where its psychoactive and hallucinatory side effects are made use of to achieve a tripped-out, numbing kind of high. As a recognised medication, it faces far fewer legal blocks than some of the other drugs on our list. It is little surprise that means there are more ongoing trials for ketamine than for any other psychedelic drug, nearly 100 happening in North America alone. Ketamine has recently been developed as an antidepressant compound, as it can produce a fast-acting, medium-term improvement in depressive mood. The mechanism of action that leads to this effect remains unclear, and various studies continue to try and pin down the biochemical pathways that produce this effect. Ketamine is, chemically, a mixture of two distinct molecules that are mirror image flips of each other. This racemic mixture consists of two configurations, R-ketamine, and S-ketamine, and they each have slightly different effects on the brain, which I'll get into in a bit. Now, S-ketamine has up until now been the more studied molecule, having received FDA and European Medicines Agency approval in 2019 for treatment-resistant depression. In this sense, it's used in combination with an orally taken antidepressant, but the resulting drug, known commercially by its developer, which is Janssen Pharmaceutica, as Spervato, is taken as a nasal spray under clinical supervision. Unlike traditional SSR antidepressants, the effects occur within a day and can last for weeks, making Spermato a very different but effective addition to current antidepressant stocks. While its high cost means it isn't currently widely used and was rejected, for example, by the NHS's Drug Advisory Panel in the UK, it may soon be accompanied by R-ketamine-based drugs. Now, R-ketamine has a weaker anti-NMDA action, but rodent studies suggest it could nonetheless produce an antidepressant response with a better side effect profile than S-ketamine. My next compound is MDMA. MDMA is an odd addition to our list of psychedelics, as it isn't a traditional hallucinogenic psychedelic. It's widely used recreationally as ecstasy, feeling generations of ravers and particles seeking a burst of energy, warmth, and happiness. 
Despite this reputation, MDMA was given breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA in 2017 for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. MDMA acts to stimulate release of the neurotransmitter serotonin, and this is what leads to the feelings of happiness and well-being so sought after by recreational users. It is also capable of enhancing the release of another mood-boosting brain chemical called dopamine. As a treatment for PTSD, MDMA could provide a solution to a problem that affects, again, many millions of people worldwide. A breakthrough trial earlier this year, headed by psychedelics nonprofit, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, looked at the potential of MDMA as a treatment for PTSD. Importantly, this compound is only given in concert with a course of psychotherapy. After three sessions of this therapy in the trial, 32% of users given a placebo no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis, but for those given MDMA instead, this percentage rocketed to 67% of participants. Lead author in the paper that documented MAP's success, University of California, San Francisco's Jennifer Mitchell, said that the unique ability of MDMA to raise compassion and understanding while tamping down fear is likely what enables it to be so effective. In particular, it appears to be most effective at helping patients with the dissociative subtype of PTSD, a group that tends to exhibit depersonalization from the trauma that causes their PTSD. Now, Mitchell suggests that with the right mindset and appropriately supportive environmental setting, MDMA can help those that have mentally distance themselves from a trauma to confront and overcome it. Now, this element of set and setting so important in psychedelic research in general. Time and time again, I read papers that emphasize that just nipping down your local, local nightclub to pick up some MDMA and doing it there and then will not have similar effects on conditions like PTSD. The presence of a qualified psychotherapist who can guide you through the rush of emotions and memories that psychedelic therapy produces is essential to these drugs' success and therapeutic benefit. Now, unlike ketamine, MDMA is listed as a Schedule One drug in the US, a classification that suggests the compound has no medical benefit. And trials like MAPS are knocking down these preconceptions and walls and will hopefully make research using these compounds far easier in the future as medical science tries to work out what exactly their medical benefit is. Now, our third compound is DMT, or N-N-dimethyltryptamine to its close friends, and it's unlike MDMA as it's all about the hallucinations. This compound is the active component of the traditional South American hallucination brew, ayahuasca, which is renowned for its strong out-of-body effects. It was actually synthesized in 1931 before it was discovered naturally by Western medicine in 1946 in the root bark of the Mimosa tenuflora plant, which is found across South and Central America. Of course, it had been used by indigenous communities in this region for many, many centuries before this uh, this discovery, but um, that's the point at which Western medicine started to adopt it. Now, since then, the drug has been dubbed the spirit molecule. Now, I think the popularization of this name, in, in my opinion, is kind of just really to make it sound kind of cool and something worth journeying to Mexico to try, but it was originally actually coined because the drug's trip shares some similarities with spiritual experiences. When I spoke to Rick Strassman, an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, who originally coined this name, he said that these similarities included visions, voices, receiving separation of consciousness from the body, extreme emotional states, and contact with seemingly discarnate intelligences, which sounds pretty cool. Now, the compound actually resembles that of our mood-boosting neurotransmitter serotonin, which is its formal name, 5-hydroxytryptamine. 
Now, our brain can actually endogenously, that means naturally, produce DMT in trace amounts, and it's found throughout the body, but why or how this process happens remains a bit of a mystery. DMT trips are very intense and very short, lasting just a few minutes. I have read that this leads to some DMT sessions being coined business trips, uh, which is a great term that I love. Now, unlike MDMA and ketamine, DMT is a compound that remains poorly assessed for therapeutic benefit. Now, Small Pharma, a UK-based drug developer, is working with Imperial College London on the world's first trial of DMT in combination with therapy for depression. Like trials with MDMA, this effort will involve taking the drug in the presence of trained therapists. Other preclinical studies are present as well, and these are looking at the potential of DMT for a variety of other indications, including one to help with stroke recovery, and you can read about that in the show notes. The final drug I want to discuss today is perhaps the one I have uncovered most for TN, and it's actually the magic mushroom-derived compound psilocybin that I want to discuss. Psilocybin is your classical natural psychedelic, by which I mean it comes from things you can find at the edge of your local golf course, gives you weird visions, and in most states in the US and most Western countries, it remains illegal. Psilocybin is the Schedule 1 psychedelic, so one of these drugs that has the highest level of restrictions on it, that is closest to receiving approval. And prohibition partners who write uh, reports on psychedelics reckon that this could occur in the next few years. It is also the Schedule 1 psychedelic, so the ones under the heaviest restrictions, that is closest to receiving approval for therapies. Now, this is something that could occur even in the next couple of years. Now, the compound is again a serotonin agonist, which means it increases the level of this mood-boosting brain chemical, but has remained illegal in most industrialized countries since the 1971 Vienna Convention that kiboshed many psychedelic drugs' availability. Decriminalization has started to crack this barrier open, with Denver becoming the first US city to remove criminal penalties for possession in May 2019. Now, psilocybin has been studied in limited and challenging circumstances by researchers in the US and UK in the intervening 50-year period. And you can read my extensive interview with Johns Hopkins assistant professor Fred Barrett in our show notes. There, we discuss the complicated science behind psilocybin's mode of action on the brain. We discussed a number of possibilities, but one fascinating one reflects the idea that psilocybin unlocks something called thalamic gating. Here is what Fred had to say about thalamic gating. The thalamus is almost like a switchboard for sensory information being transmitted to higher cortical areas. The thalamus acts as a gate, if you will, in many instances. It's responsible for routing sensory information, and in that duty, it's also responsible for holding back some sensory information it's often under the direction of higher prefrontal and executive cortices, and so depending on what you need to pay attention to, the routing through the thalamus will change to attend to one or another sensory stimulus or modality. This is what happens in a normal, healthy, waking, conscious brain. Some of the experiences people have with psychedelics include an almost overwhelming sensorium and the cognition that you're sensing things with psychedelics that you don't normally sense. I'm hopefully not getting too scandalous by saying this, I think that if you were to really look for the reducing valve that Huxley was talking about, it would be the thalamus. It reduces the sensory information coming through to your cortex. The hypothesis was that psychedelics reduce the gating of the thalamus. They impair the thalamus's reduction of sensory information and open the valve. That's an interesting hypothesis. One of the things working against that hypothesis is that there are no serotonin 2A receptors in the thalamus. But that's okay because the thalamus undergoes top-down control from a number of other cortical regions that do have lots of serotonin 2A receptors. 
is what Fred told me. Now, as you can see, it's a complicated area, but as with traditional SSRI antidepressants, not knowing the exact mechanism of action of a drug hasn't stopped its progress through trials. A landmark study was conducted earlier this year by a team at Imperial College London. It was one of the first trials to directly compare the antidepressant effects of a psychedelic and traditional antidepressant, in this case, the SSRI escitalopram. The study showed that psilocybin could match the depression-reducing effects of the SSRI. The data suggested that psilocybin may produce a deeper and faster effect, but the trial only included 59 people, so it wasn't adequately powered to detect the significant difference here. What that means, essentially, is that research groups need more funding to pursue these lines of inquiry, and scheduling of psilocybin is a huge barrier to that. To sum things up, I have this quote from one of the trial authors, Imperial College London professor Robin Carhart Harris. He encouraged researchers and the public to look into their data, concluding, these latest findings build on our previous research testing psilocybin therapy for treatment-resistant depression and offer the most compelling evidence yet to support efforts towards licensing psilocybin therapy as a regulated mental health intervention. All four of these compounds, at different stages in their progress toward being accepted, as legal treatments for mental health conditions, show the power and potential of psychedelics. Here at TN, we'll be following the progress of these compounds and hope to bring as much of that science to you as we can. I hope you'll be there alongside us. Thanks for listening.